there, everyone. Welcome back to the Paraconnection Podcast. You're here with Schuler. Sadly, the rest of the team wasn't able to join me today, but that's all right, because we have a very special guest joining the podcast today. And that special guest, his name is Ron Hood from the podcast Ron's Amazing Stories. So Ron's been in the podcasting world for quite some time, and he's covered a vast amount of different topics. Everything from old-time radio to the paranormal to what's considered head-scratchers or the unexplainable, all sorts of different stuff. And honestly, Ron was one of the very first podcasters I ever learned about. So it's without a doubt an honor to have Ron join our podcast and talk about the unexplainable and the paranormal. And with that being said, let's go ahead and get Ron on and get this podcast rolling. All right, everyone, we have Ron on the line here. Ron, can you hear us? I certainly can. Awesome. How are you doing, Ron? I'm doing really well. I want to thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Well, that's good. Thank you for coming on. I'd have to say that the honor is all mine because you've had us on your podcast. I have. And you were actually one of the first podcasters I ever listened to, and it inspired me to get this podcast rolling up myself. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited about our topic. I understand we're going to do some talking about the infamous head scratcher. Yeah, I'd have to say that sounds like a plan to us, Ron, because as you know, we're a paranormal team, and anything paranormal and even the unexplainable, that's right up our alley, so for sure. So, Ron, before we jump into today's topic on the podcast, would you like to briefly explain yourself and talk a little bit about your podcast and kind of what you do, what you talk about, and how people can reach you? Sure. Well, I uh, back in 2011... I was trying to figure out some life choices. I had been working for a major uh, chip manufacturer for 17 years, and they wanted me to go to Phoenix. I didn't want to go to Phoenix, so we parted company, and that left me with, what do I do next? Um, I decided that I wanted to work for myself, so I opened an editing business. And with that comes the idea of how do you promote yourself? How do you get yourself out there? And I got to thinking about podcasting. Podcasting in 2011 was still not as, not quite as mainstream as it is today. It was getting there, but it was starting to really pick up and people were starting to do that. And my idea was that I was going to bring on authors to talk about writing styles, talk about their books, talk about all of that. And in the end, it, that's not the way the podcast went. It kind of, became its own entity. The podcast had its own life and said, yeah, you may want to bring authors on and you will do that, but you're also going to get a lot of stories from your listeners. And so Ron's Amazing Stories was born. The idea behind it is I do present stories. I tell people any kind of story. I'm not locked into the paranormal per se, although I would say 75% of that is paranormal of what I do. But uh, that was kind of how it all got started, and it just grew from there. About three years in, um, I had some people contacted me and said, you know, we love your podcast. We want to put you on the radio, too, and blossomed out from that, and that's how I got involved. Wow, Ron. So just real quick, it would have to seem like your journey in the podcasting world, you've branched off from different pathways, you know, and... Obviously, the paths that you took have led you to where you're at, and it's become something really great, it seems. Yeah, exactly. 
And, you know, I got to say, I love the way it is now. And I'm actually trying now to push it more towards the listener stories and it's and backing off from the uh, the pra- talking writing styles, although I still do that from time to time. Of course. And Ron, still listening to your podcast, I've noticed that that content is still in there. But I don't feel like that's necessarily a bad thing. It's good to still have that originality and what you've started with can still be put into your podcast continuing going forth. And also having your listeners' stories in there, I mean, that's wonderful and all, but for the fact that you're able to take those stories and intertwine it with your original content that you had in the beginning of your podcast project... I just find that really fascinating and refreshing that you can take different content like that and make something better out of it. And going into it with the OTR, Old Time Radio, I mean, that's personally one of my favorites right there. And (laughs) that's something that I always look forward to listening to your podcast. Yeah, that was the other idea is how do I get people into the podcast? And and so I build it originally. If you listen to episode like one through 50, you're going to find a lot of just heavy-duty old-time radio. Nowadays, I backed off a lot from that, and I more or less, um, I use more contemporary content. Yeah, and with that, Ron, you know, I feel like the paths that you've taken, you know, the changes you've made and what you haven't changed, it still correlates with the original Ron. You know, and that's good that you still have that because the audience that is following you, yeah, some of them may be new and they're they're used to more of your new content, but you have some of your original audience and they may be more at heart to that older content that you had. But it's just really nice to see how you're able to mix and mingle with everything and you're able to bring that to your old and new audience and keep moving forth with that. So it's it's really nice to hear and see it. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't changed that much. (laughs) so ron before we jump into the heavy duty stories here um i'm going to go ahead and have you do this now if you like to and at the end of the podcast you can go ahead and plug them in again but what are some really good outlets what are the best ways that our listeners can reach out to you and follow you in your podcast and all you do you know one thing i've learned as becoming a podcaster in the mainstream is that simpler is better and so if you want to find out about ron's amazing stories Go to ronsamazingstories.com. You're going to find everything you need, anything you want to know, uh, all the links to every service I'm on. And uh, so one-stop shopping. And I recommend that to all podcasters. Originally, I was so diverse. I was all here. I was a little bit there. I was over there. And, you know, it makes it hard for people to know what to do. So I got it under one roof. And that's where you go. ronsamazingstories.com. You know, Ron, there you go. You're inspiring me once again. And I think I'm going to heed this information that you're giving off here and kind of put that towards our podcast (laughs) and, uh, you know, try to make things a little more simplistic, you know, for everyone listening to our podcast and checking out the team and things that we do. So, yeah, thank you. That's a really good idea, to be honest. Hey, I didn't learn it from just me. I don't (laughs) know if you've ever heard of Jim Harold. Jim Harold? Absolutely. He has been my mentor and uh, and friend, and more or less, he's the one that said, hey, diversity is good, but not in podcasting. Yeah, and that makes absolute sense too, Ron. I mean, compared to just having one website, to having five different outlets or many websites, you know, I mean, in the podcasting world, social media world, it can make it a lot easier, especially if you have these links 
in one spot to take you to different branched out areas. So yeah, I, I totally agree on that. Well, and it's also the main uh, delivery site too, where my RSS feed and all that stuff all stems from the same place. All right. So Ron, you were telling me that you have a list of head scratcher stories that you would like to share on the podcast today. Well, I, you know, I, it's kind of weird. I don't know which ones you, what types of stories you want to hear, but I do, I'm a big fan of the head scratcher uh, because it doesn't require any belief. The head scratcher is something that could be explained, but then again, it's difficult to explain. So I can give you an example right now if you want to hear one. How about that? That would be wonderful, Ron. Yeah, go ahead. This is actually a short one. And I think it's a good way to begin. Uh, I'm going to read it. The way I have these written down is how I presented them in the podcast. So it's easier for me if I just read it like I did way back whenever this appeared on the podcast. So here we go. So our story today is a bit of a mystery on many fronts. It was sent in with no way to track it, no way to know who sent it, and of course, no way to know if it's true. It is short, sweet, and presents a lot of mystery itself. I read it now as it was sent to me on a now defunct email address, idano.q.com. When I was 12, I was presented with a problem. My dog named Trouble was getting skinny. We could all see it. We took him to the vet and found nothing wrong. The doctor suggested that we feed the dog by hand to see if he's eated. He responded to this very favorably and was soon back in at optimal weight. So we decided to go back to the regular feedings, thinking things had been fixed. They weren't. Soon the problem reoccurred and he began to lose weight again. Perplexed, we decided on a stakeout. We fed trouble and watched from the bushes. It was a long night and nothing happened. Trouble did not eat. We went to check his bowl, and to my shock, it was empty. I had watched my sister fill it myself. There was food in there, and now it's gone. We thought for sure a mistake was made, so the next night we repeated the experiment. We set the food out, and again watched, and again, trouble did not eat. After a few hours, we checked the bowl, and again, it was empty. Someone, something, was taking the food right under our noses. We never found the culprit, nor did we feed the dog on the porch again. We moved him inside to the kitchen and never had a problem again. If you don't believe this tale, that's okay. I have several hours of video recorded, and if you are of a mind to figure this out, more power to you. And so there you go, a head-scratcher. Yeah, Ron, I'd have to say, after listening to that, I'm still scratching my head. I've been scratching it all the way through. That's, <laughs> to say the least, really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ron, just kind of dissecting the story really quick, as a paranormal investigator and, you know, uh, just logically thinking at the same time, the bowl itself was outside on the porch, right? Yes, on the porch. And, Ron, you also said that the uh, the person that contacted you they also had surveillance video. Is that correct? That's what he said. He said he has several hours of video that he went through watching it and nothing ever happened to the bowl. So even after review of the video, 
it's being stated that there were no people, no animals, nothing was coming up, moving the bowl, or physically taking the food out. Huh. So with everything being said, as is, Ron, the only thing I can kind of think of off the top of my head logically is perhaps some type of climate control, whether the food got wet or, you know, soggy, and it possibly over time disintegrated, but I mean, that's a in a short amount of time, of course, but that's, you know, really the only thing hitting my head right now. Okay, but then yeah. Trouble did not eat. They go up and check the bowl, and it's empty. It's not soggy. They're sitting there in the bushes watching this bowl, and Ron, I think they would have known if it was rainy or something out there. You know, quite honestly, Ron, at this point, <laughs> the only thing I can think of, if not like ants coming through and just quickly moving the food, possibly aliens. I don't know how, I don't know why, but <laughs> that's where I'm at, you know, scratching my head at the same time. You know, that's why I love head scratchers, because they don't require an answer. The answer is, the bowl was empty. They moved, they started feeding the dog inside, and in the kitchen, I think they said, never had the problem again. Yeah, you know, in saying that, Ron, one thing's for sure, whatever the issue was with this food being moved or, you know, mysteriously vanishing, obviously it came from a source outside. Whether intelligent, living, or whatever it may or may not have been, it was an outside situation because whatever was doing it, it couldn't get inside or something. But, I mean, I don't know. It's it, That's really interesting. It's truly, truly interesting. Well, and like I said in the beginning, this was one of those that the uh, email def address was defunct, so I could never contact them again. All right, Ron, well, what about you? What do you personally believe or think could have been, you know, going on with this bowl of food for this dog? Okay, well, you know, what you could do is you could take the paranormal view. There's a troublesome ghost, comes in, takes the food away, and enjoys it. Second possibility hey, maybe there was a hole by the bowl and a raccoon was popping up and from behind it and they just didn't see it. I mean, it doesn't have to be paranormal, but it could. Wow. Just within seconds, Ron, you became a professional paranormal investigator, both logically and spiritually open. <laughs> Those are actually both really good answers, and, and I can see that. I can see both of them from both sides of the spectrum here, and uh, they make sense to me. The thing is, is kind of just investigating or researching furthermore to actually get the true answer. But just with what we have, yeah, those two answers make pretty good sense to me. You know, in touching base a little bit, Ron, with the paranormal, I mean, there are quite a few stories out there that have something to do with a spirit or a ghost moving objects. And when these people are talking about these stories, when the objects are moved, they're never seen. So, I mean, in a sense, you could even consider it teleportation, if you will. Um, but whether or not it's spiritual or it's something scientific or something completely advanced above our understanding, that's one thing. But going to the more logical, our physical, real world type of thinking here, it could have been something as simple as a raccoon or some type of animal getting the food from a point in the camera where you couldn't see. Exactly. So, I mean, those two options, those two beliefs there, Ron, they're, they're really, really good, especially within seconds. I'm still impressed on that. <laughs> Honestly, Ron, I want to ask you, uh, you want to join our paranormal team by chance? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 
I've been asked to join paranormal teams before, and I'll tell you what, I would be the wrong person to do it for one very simple reason. What's that, Ron? I'd get scared. (laughs) (laughs) Ron, that's all right. That's okay, because you know, as a paranormal investigator, if you're not getting scared, I think that kind of proves there's something wrong. Being scared, that's not only natural, but it kind of deems the whole, in my belief, the reality of what actually is going on. Yeah, exactly. It's a real emotion. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's some people out there that can really fake it, but when it's real fear, that's just when you know there might be something going on. No, you know, it's just, you know, I, I watch some of the, the television programs and, and some of of the, those guys really put me off. They I, It just doesn't seem right the way that they, they're just constantly going after people and constantly trying to make things happen. Whereas if I were to do a, an, a, an investigation, I think I would be happy if nothing happened. Oh yeah, absolutely. Ron, I couldn't agree more with you on that because for the mere fact of provocation being a negative type of way, even in the physical world to approach someone, especially in the paranormal world, that is just a big no-no. You don't know what you're getting into if you can't control or safely manage the situation that you're in it's just not the thing to do and and trying to conjure or you know irritate an entity that's not even of the physical plane it's it's disrespectful and it's just not something that we as a paranormal team believe in and it's not something that you should go looking forward to do because it's just not right but to provoke just for the mere fact of gathering evidence no, that's that's not the way we operate. That's the, that's not the way we believe. And we recommend that to any paranormal team. You know, it's just not the way you want to orchestrate yourself as an individual or a team because it's, again, dangerous and disrespectful. So that's our 50 cents on it. And it seems like you agree on that as well, Ron. Yeah. And in some kind, and I know we're getting off the topic of head scratchers, but not really if you think about it, because I scratch my head when I watch some of these paranormal shows. But uh, I think that if to kind of put a bow on it is that I believe that there is a veil out there. I believe that there is a spiritual world going on all around us. And so why wouldn't that spill into the normal world? But it wouldn't do it all the time. I mean, it would be when the veil is at its thinnest. That's a really good point. You know, and one more thing, Ron, going into the whole how active locations are, you know, on these TV shows and what other people proclaim, it's from our personal experience as a paranormal team, that's not a reality. That's not what happens. You know, more often than not, the locations that we have visited here and throughout the state of Indiana we don't get all that much, you know, even if it's at one location that's, that is active, it's not going to happen every single minute, every single hour. It just doesn't happen like that. Whether or not we're just not there at the right time, at the right location, the right time of year. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, it's the reality for us is it doesn't happen back to back. That's just not the way it is. And I kind of feel like that's more of a reality check. When it comes to investigating, when you do gather something, when you do capture that evidence, it's like, whoa, okay, wait a minute, here's something unique, here's something different. But compared to getting it all the time, that's where I personally question, okay, how fabricated is this? How is it that one person is going to get something within an hour's time 
and only 10 minutes of that hour of evidence, they got nothing. That just, unless some black magic's going on, you know, or there's some type of conjuring ritual going on. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but we don't do that, so maybe that's why we're not getting anything. But yeah, it's an interesting fact, nonetheless. Shall I give you another story? Absolutely. You don't even have to ask, Ron. All right. This one, um, I remember this one. This one is freaky, to say the least. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's worth taking some time and because it has a lot of elements to it. So, I'm again, I'm going to be reading it as I read it on the show back in the day, whenever that was. I'm guessing this one was probably 2014-ish, somewhere around there. All right. Sounds good, Ron. So... Um, it came from Emma Mills, Jackson Township, New Jersey, and she wrote, thank you for the podcast. I listen each week and love all the stories. I was inspired by Tom from Germany to send this story in. His frog story happened to me, kind of, but not exactly the same. I hope you like it and use it on Ron's Amazing Stories, Emma. All right, here's her story. I'm old now. It's amazing to me to think that this story happened over 40 years ago. I was just married to John and it was the summer of 1976. Everyone was celebrating that summer. America had just had its 200th birthday. We had gone to a celebration and there were booths everywhere. We stopped at a woodcarver station that proclaimed that they would carve your statue while you waited. We were hooked paid the price, and posed for a Polaroid. They said, come back in an hour and pick it up. We went around the fair doing all manner of things and forgot about the carving. It wasn't until we were driving home that John remembered it. We tried to go back, but the traffic was terrible, so we decided to go back the next day. When we got there, we saw that the woodcarver's booth was gone and were told that they'd only paid for the day. Dejected, we tried to find them in the phone book. Nothing. No internet in those days. So we resolved to our fate and cursed our forgetfulness. Fast forward 10 years. John and I were in New York City for his work. I decided to go along because I'd always wanted to visit Coney Island in Brooklyn. So I met a friend and we went while John did the work thing. Coney Island is amazing. If you've ever gone to it, it's like stepping back in time. Shops, rides, food, everywhere. It very much reminded of me that day 10 years before in New Jersey. I even mentioned it to my friend. She and I were walking along the boardwalk and saw a familiar sign. Carve your statue while you wait. We walked up to the shop window and there were several carvings being displayed. One of them looked very familiar. I could not believe my eyes. There was John and I. We were locked in that pose that we did 10 years before. I was shocked. We quickly went into the store and went right to the statue. I picked it up and it was us. The Polaroid we took was even under it. Carved into the nameplate was John and Emma, happy fourth, 1976. How could this be? I went to the counter and told my story. The girl there went into the back and came out with the very same man 
10 years later, that had carved us. He smiled widely as if he even recognized us. All he said was, you waited a long time to pick up your carving, yes? We took some pictures, none of which turned out, by the way. Still no internet in 1987. That statue is still with us today, and it is now officially considered vintage and is well on its way to the title antique. Emma from New Jersey. Wow, Ron. What a coincidence. Like, seriously. <laughs> Even with today's internet and everything, like... What's the chances, especially way back then, 76 to 86? Like, seriously, what are the chances 10 years from the time you had your carved statue made to the time that you randomly find it, what's the chance that that actually even would happen? Wow. Of course, we may not know all the details of what happened when they finally picked up the statue, but I mean, from what the story stated, the guy didn't seem all that shocked. Maybe it happens a lot. I don't know. We don't know, <laughs> but it's just, uh, it's just kind of funny. He's like, Oh, okay. There you are. It took you a while, but yeah, here it is still waiting for you. And you know, like whether or not he's that type of creator that keeps all of his works that he's done, but it's like, there's really no true personal value to that, you know? And after 10 years, you think he would have used it for scrap material or you just would have you know, threw it out and made room for his new pieces, but he kept it for 10 years for people that he personally did not know, allegedly. So, I don't know. Big time head scratcher indeed, Ron. Good one. Okay, so that's the non-paranormal view, but there is the paranormal view. Let's take for the fact that they were in New Jersey and they found the statue at Coney Island in New York City. Now, what are the odds that they are going to go to Coney Island, find this particular guy, and step in and find their statue? Doesn't that seem a little too coincidental? It does seem a little too coincidental, because, I mean, along with what I was saying with the 10-year gap, you know, this gentleman not throwing out old pieces uh, to make, you know, more space, you know, for his future works, from one state to another... And within a 10-year time gap, I mean, that is a lot of, I don't even know how you'd really explain it. The, uh, the factors are just a little extreme for someone to save one piece of work, or even if he does it for other people, to save these individuals' personal items he made for them. You know, for all that amount of time, going state to state, that just does seem a little odd, a little out there, but... Nonetheless, if it was me, I would be most definitely happy. Like, oh, thank you so much for saving that for me. This is such a unique item. But yeah, you know, thinking like just, wow, wow. You know what? Let me take a moment here, Ron. I'm going to scratch my head. <laughs> I mean, it's just that. That's why I call them head scratchers. They could be paranormal or they could simply be coincidental. You know, thinking about the details a little bit here, Ron, let's step back to where you said... In the story, the, the photos that were taken that were to be developed 10 years later while they were in New York waiting, you know, and um, that's where they found the statue booth and everything, the little store. Their photos eventually, when they did get them, they did not come out. They were bad photos, all of them. Now, in the paranormal field, what I and my team is used to, whenever you take a photo, still, still photography, even with video too, um, of something that you know is paranormal or spiritually happening in front of you 
or something odd that did happen to you and maybe you don't know what's going on but the, that instinct kicks in and it's like take a picture take a quick video and when you go back for review the video the photos they come back completely corrupted you can't view them uh, it might be all white it might be all black it might be discolored uh, the video will skip the video will freeze I mean just really weird stuff that's what we call device manipulation and so in the paranormal aspect it may be nothing at all it may not mean anything but for the fact that all their photos when it when they were finished being developed just came out completely destroyed if you will that to me kind of stands out as a possible paranormal symptom you know to their encounter to their story but uh, it, it's, it's odd to say the least, but it's, it's something to kind of just put as a footnote for the story. And it's interesting. It is. Another thing I've been noticing during this podcast with Iran is <laughs> I've actually been the more skeptical and logical thinking one here. And you have been the one throwing out the paranormal ideas and possibilities. So <laughs> it's like the table tables turned here a little bit. It, it's, it's different, but I, I like it. I like it a lot. It's, it's funny. <laughs> well, it's, it's because, you know, that's, that's the beauty of a head scratcher. It can lead to a completely normal conversation or it can lead to a um, paranormal possibility. You know, I have another one here. It's... Uh, kind of it's hard not for it to be paranormal all right all right you're piquing my interest ron that's a fact <laughs> so we jump right into it yeah let's go ahead and jump into it see what you got all right this comes from melanie uh she's in ohio i don't have a last name for her i just that's all i have okay. now i do know this and it's dawning on me now why i recognize the name she has sent other stories into the podcast as well over the years all right uh in 1991 i was 15 years old my cousin and i went on a trip with an organization youth for christ to washington dc our first night there, my cousin and I decided to take a late night stroll and to get something to eat. Neither of us had been to the city before, but like most teens, we had no worries or fear of walking alone in a strange city at night. We found a McDonald's several blocks away and we finished our meal and got ready to head back to the hotel. We suddenly realized we didn't know how to get back. We were lost. Suddenly, from out of nowhere, two attractive young men around our age appeared and asked if we needed help. We explained our dilemma and they told us that they were also in town for the same conference and that they were staying in the same hotel. They said they knew the way back to the conference and that they would lead us there. As we walked, we talked lightly about where we were from and such. As we approached the front door of the hotel, we started to go in, but the boys both paused and hung back. They said they weren't quite ready to go to their room and that they would see us around another time. My cousin and I were in DC probably three or four days. During that entire time, we searched for those boys everywhere we went. We never saw them again, and I truly believe that they were guardian angels and have always been thankful. Wow, wow. Yeah, that story right there. Ron, that one's uh that one does kind of stand out as something more angelic, a uh a 
manifestation of something a little more positive and a little more kind of like, hey, I am what I am, but I'm not going to let you know that I am. It's, I don't know, it's interesting. And getting onto the topic of angels, that right away, you know, screams paranormal to me. So yeah, with that being said, this is one of those almost paranormal, but still head scratcher type of stories, <laughs> borderline, if you will. Okay, then I will take the other side this time. All right, Ron, more logically, what do you got? Well, it could have been two attractive young men around their age that were at the conference, but for some reason had to leave. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a very good point, Ron. You know, nice and simplistic, but realistic. (laughs) So real quick, jumping back to the last story, Ron, with the uh, sculptor and everything, I kind of feel like what I was thinking also is that the sculptor was a spirit guide if you will and I guess you can kind of tie that in with an angelic species or entity and comparing you know just how coincidental it was for the first couple to run into the sculptor and his wife and for all that uh, you know happened within such a long period of time there's some type of life connection whether it's spiritual or it was just a random act of, you know, happenings, I still kind of feel like there was some type of supernatural connection, and that goes into spirit guides and angels for me. And this story, with its given scenario, it's just screaming something extraordinary, you know, and I don't know, it's, I wish I had more words for it other than angels and spirit guides, but, you know, it's just kind of, it is what it is. You know, Ron, another perspective I have here, this is an idea of paranormal, of course, is the two gentlemen that helped the storyteller get back to the hotel with their leave and how they got them there and they just stood outside, they didn't go in with them. There's a theory in the paranormal world of spirits having a range or possibly not being allowed or welcomed into certain places in our world, whether it's a building a location altogether, like a certain amount of land, or there's an object inside or around a certain area, whatever's preventing these entities, if they are spirits, it's a blockade. And I kind of feel like that's a possibility here, and it's, quote-unquote with me here, a logical theory that these guys, if they were spiritual or of some type of non-human, non-physical world entity, they could not go inside. They could not go into that location because they did not have the permission or they did not have the power, you know? And and of course, again, this is just a theory, but yeah, that kind of stood out to me. And that's something that just kind of hit me on the head along with this head scratcher. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hence the name, the head scratcher. (laughs) Ron, I have to say these head scratchers that you're sharing with us on the podcast today, it's, It's got me over here in this mode of feeling like not only a paranormal investigator, but just a PI, a private investigator, you know, wanting to get in deep into these stories more than what we're given and really find a resolution or an understanding the facts, you know, it's, it's really got me going. And that's what, like you said, is really great about these head scratchers. It can open up the mind to believing the impossible, the possible, and then having an unknown mindset but you have that logical understanding that hey this is this is weird this shouldn't be but something's going on it's clearly happening you know 
And I kind of feel like that's where people start questioning their sanity, but you know, <laughs> that's all right. That's what head scratchers are all about. It, to me, it's a growth plan, you know, it helps you. But anyways, Ron, do you have any more head scratchers for us? Well, I have another angel story here, and this one uh, comes from my very own mother. Oh, okay, Ron, your own mother. So we're hitting home here on this one. All right, go ahead. Okay. The year was 1971. My dad was a retired pastor when this story occurred. Retired was just a word as far as he was concerned. Instead of relaxing to a simple lifestyle, he became the pastor for congregations who were either waiting to find a replacement or theirs was ill. In fact, he had recently returned from one in Arizona where he had served for six months. That's hard work for a retired man. He and my mom were planning to move to Hudson, New York. He would become the pastor of a congregation there for who knows how long. I was totally against it. He was quite ill and walking was almost impossible. However, he insisted. The furniture they needed had already been sent, so I took them to the train where they would move across the country from Washington State to New York. The picture of them leaving is a memory I'll never forget. Mom was wrestling with suitcases, and Dad was carrying a small box. I always wondered what was in that box. Probably only his cigars. He did like his cigars. When they arrived in New York, they knew that they had to get to the airport to take a plane to Hudson. They thought that there would be a bus provided, but the girl at the desk said that it would be up to them. She pointed to a glass door where they could get a taxi. They headed out and saw hundreds of taxis and thousands of people all looking for a ride. How are we ever going to get a taxi, Mom said as she dragged the suitcases outside. Dad still hung on to that little box. All of a sudden, two young men came to where they were standing. We'll take care of you, they said. One of the men picked up the suitcases and the other men took my dad's arm. They brought them to a place where there was only one taxi waiting and it all seemed quiet. The man helped dad into the back seat while the other took care of the suitcases. Mom turned to thank these young men, but they were not to be found anywhere. She looked up and down the street and saw nothing except taxis and people getting into them. Where were the young men? Mom said that they were angels sent to aid them in a very tough time. I don't know what happened. They arrived in Hudson and my dad took over the church. It would be his last because he would pass away a few months later. He is buried in Hudson, New York, and my mom returned to Washington State to live out the rest of her days. And there you go. Wow, Ron. You know, after listening to this story... I personally feel like it kind of hit home here. It honestly sounds like one of the podcast stories that you've had. Very familiar. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Well, this one was on the podcast. All of these were. Well, you know, Ron, with this story, with what your mom said, the amount of time, the amount of seconds, such short amount of timing from looking one direction and looking back, there's just no realistic, no humanly possible answer 
to give on how these people could have been there and just been gone. Even in New York. You know, it's it's just one of those paranormal theories where it's the blink of the eye theory. As a human, I don't know of any way to demineralize myself, so... <laughs> Well, first off, you know, the interesting thing about this is I have a lot of connection with this story, obviously, because it's my family. And I've actually heard my grandmother tell this story. Wow. Now, this my mother wrote based on her conversation with my grandmother. But I've heard my grandmother tell this story. And when my grandmother told it, she was she said there is absolutely no way they could have gone because the area where they were was like a bubble and everything else around them was just chaos. But when these men took their, came up, it was like they had a bubble around them and it was all quiet. It was calm, peaceful. They got them into the taxi, blah, blah, blah. And the hustle and bustle of New York, if you've ever been there, you know what the hustle and bustle of New York is like. It's crazy. It's literally nuts. And for them to have this calm in the storm, crazy stuff. You know, I completely agree with your mom believing that this was a supernatural paranormal encounter. And I mean, this, my theories, my beliefs might be a little biased because I am a paranormal investigator and I believe, you know, in higher powers and the spiritual world. But Ron, with the things that were shared, with the things that were encountered during that time, how everything seemed more quiet, seemed more calm around these gentlemen, how they just vanished in thin air. And I mean, regardless if you're on a long stretch of street or you're in a bubble type of shaped area, it's New York. I mean, there's just no way that you're going to be able to vanish out of thin air without seeing people, you know, especially if you're looking forward and you quickly look back, you would see people pushing other people to get out of the way. You would hear people more than likely yelling some profanity or something, or, you know, just noticing that there was a disruption in the crowd. Something would stand out to some degree. But how things were just so calm and just gone, that to me just kind of screams, again, paranormal. And that's that's personally where I stand on that. Yeah, it's, it's a very intriguing head-scratcher, to say the least, on this. That's, you know, I mean, okay, so now I'll take the other side, and... And having been to New York and Chicago and places like that, that it just, it is such a rat race and such a, just an absolute chaos, especially right there by uh, the train station, that it could have, they could have disappeared into the crowd and not known it. It, it isn't completely, you know, completely impossible that they just didn't slip back into the crowd. Their job was done. They saw two, They saw an older couple in distress, came to their aid, got them to the taxi, and and who knows, maybe my grandmother said that out loud. Maybe she said, how are we ever going to get a taxi? Who guys heard it? And they were just nice guys. Yep. There you go. Non-paranormal. Yep. Um, now, and this is my own family. Now, I am going to tell you, if you heard my grandmother tell this story, there was no way that it was anything but paranormal. <laughs> so yeah your grandma she's completely on board with the supernatural paranormal stuff and you know ron if i was there you know being told the story by her i would be completely like yes ma'am i believe you <laughs> all right ron 
let me go ahead and ask you this. Do you have a story, a pretty good, high quality story that you would consider completely paranormal that you can share with us today? You want to hear, you want me to get off the head scratcher now and go paranormal, aren't you? Yes, sir. Yeah, that is correct. You know, um, it, it just kind of feels like I'm having a little paranormal withdrawal here. And I mean, forgive me. I'm a paranormal investigator, Ron, but I'm just curious to get a story from you, from your perspective, your side of the world, that you would even consider completely paranormal, not the in-between. All right. Well, let me uh, let me look at the list here and think of, uh, oh, yeah, here we go. How long is this one? Oh, this is fairly short as well. All right, Ron. Let's see what you got. Um, this one has a kind of an interesting history. I did not write this one. This was written by Kim. Um, she didn't leave any information where she was from, um, but she's always been a fan and still is a fan of, of the podcast, but I don't know where she's from. And I always like to give people credit for their stories. So here we go. I've never lived in a haunted house, but my mother did as a teen. Other houses on our street had strange things going on, too. A few homes away from her lived a man and his family. One night, one of his daughters went to bed with a bad headache. The next day, she passed away from an aneurysm. After the funeral, the family went away to get their minds off the tragedy and asked my uncle to check on their pets. My mom and dad, they were dating then, went with my uncle to take care of the house. My mother had, been, had heard that there was a grand piano there and she wanted to play it. My dad was studying to be a veterinarian, so he thought he could be useful. After entering the house, my uncle and my father headed to the basement to see to the animals and my mother went straight to the piano on the ground floor. She was playing with it and she felt something brush her ankles. She thought a cat must have left the basement and walked past her. She kept playing and she felt it again. She looked under the piano and saw nothing. When she stared again, she felt hands clasp her legs and grab them tightly. She pulled away, dashed into the basement door, called my uncle and father and waited for them. When they all walked outside, my uncle could tell my mom was rattled and asked what was wrong. She told him what had happened, and he turned white. Later, after the group got home, my uncle told them he knew the family very well. The daughter who had passed away liked to play a game with her father. When he would sit down to play the piano, she would crawl underneath, grab his ankles, and push his feet up and down on the pedals. Wow. And I do mean wow. First thing that comes to mind on this one, Ron, would have to be a residual haunting or a bleed through, if you will. Whatever happened, you know, whoever lived around or in this location, there's something obviously connected, you know, when something's being done, such as playing a piano or, you know, sitting in a certain area. And whether it's intelligent in the sense of it sees something that it's used to, or it's residual and if you happen to sit in that location or you happen to do the activity at that location at the right time, that's what happens. That's the type of experience you're gonna get is that sensation of being touched. 
And to me, that's just fascinating. You know, that is truly a creepy, but really fascinating paranormal story, Ron. Really is. (laughs) So what about you, Ron? You know, I'm going to disagree. Well, I, you know, again, I usually am skeptical on these things, but given the fact that it grabbed the ankles physically, that's an intelligent act and not a residual haunting. So I'm, I'm sorry, I just had to disagree with you. You know, Ron, that makes complete and utter sense. And I do agree looking at it in the intelligent form that that is a possibility. I guess what I'm kind of thinking here when I say residual is the fact that there is an attachment to the piano. Oh, certainly. Or some, like I said, somebody sitting in a certain location. And that is like that bleed through of a memory or, you know, some type of really important small thing, quote unquote, you know, such as somebody comes home after work and they kiss or hug their loved one. You know, that's something that you hold very dire to your heart. Everyone else in the world may not care, but you know, that individual or those individuals, the little stuff means a lot, means everything. And and that's what I kind of thought about when I said residual, but in the sense of being grabbed, I guess I shouldn't have just used that as the primary title because you're right. If you're being grabbed by something invisible or, you know, visible, (laughs) clearly there's intelligence coming through for something like that to happen. So yeah, yeah, I, I totally see that. I do. So with this story being shared, and I feel like there's some type of attachment to the piano or, you know, the, the environment or that one spot where the piano used to sit, however the setup is, I'm thinking attachments here. What about you? When it comes to attachments, in the spiritual world, the paranormal, what comes to mind? What do you think of? Well, uh, I have had enough doll stories thrown at me that uh, I firmly believe that uh, spirits can attach themselves to objects. I lean more towards, um, in the case of something that is menacing, I lean more towards the demon aspect of attachments i i believe they can just about have inhabit anything they want therefore uh usually have a negative connotation and there's usually something very frightening about whatever is going on with that particular attachment in this case we have a little girl that just absolutely loved her father and would play games with him so she had just passed away she may have been wandering in that house not necessarily attached to the piano, but where's my family? What's going on? If you remember, the the whole thing was that the family had left to sort out their lives after losing their daughter. And so the little girl wouldn't know that. She would just wait around the house and here comes somebody playing the piano. So not maybe not necessarily an attachment in this case, but I do believe that spirits can attach to objects. So why not a piano? I totally get that, Ron. I totally do. And, you know, that is a really interesting theory because if it's not the piano itself, like you said, with this being a a young kindred spirit, she does want her family. She does love her family. And sadly, after the passing, they left. Yeah. And if that's the if this is the situation, her mindset more than likely is thinking when she hears a piano play or something, you know, that she kind of held close to her heart that she knows it's a beacon to her. And that's when she comes out 
And she's like, all right, this must be my family or this must be someone that knows my family. And that's how you get this encounter, if you will. And honestly, it's really sad and tragic. And, um, you know, it's, it's something to think about. But that is a really interesting thought. It may not be just the piano. It's the fact that she passed away in that home. So it's actually the home, the land itself, of where she was last at in the physical world. And then there's other contributions to this possibility that we can kind of, you know, theorize here. She possibly didn't understand religion or spirituality. Maybe they didn't consider the afterlife. Maybe they didn't believe in it, you know. And being a young adolescence, it can, it can always affect someone differently. It's not necessarily just the age, but it's the understanding, the knowledge of the mind of, you know, life after death and uh, spirits and the physical world and all that stuff. So depending on what she understood, what she believed in, those also could have been factors of why she hasn't moved on spiritually after her, you know, being deceased and sadly not moving on. And, and that could just be like a one and one. But yeah, yeah, I didn't didn't necessarily take that into consideration right away. But yeah, that's a very interesting thought too, Ron. I love these conversations. It's really got me just kind of like bringing out a map and I just want to start sketching different webs of possibilities and <laughs> all that stuff. It's really interesting. And another thing that kind of hits my mind here, Ron, is um, even in the afterlife, even after you pass away, let's say you do know that you are no longer of the physical living world, but you're now a spirit, but obviously, you know, in a different way, you're still alive. Um, the The whole process, the whole understanding the question that I have and that I think a lot of other people may have is when you are on the other side and you haven't moved on to where, you know, I guess you should move on to as a spirit, how would you move on? What would you have to do? What would you have to know? Where could you look in order to understand and know how to move on? You know, and if there is no way, I guess that makes sense why there are spirits locked in a home or locked at a cemetery or locked at a, a bridge or locked at wherever they were when they sadly, you know, possibly tragically or quickly moved on and they had no control or understanding of it. And now they're just like, wait, whoa, what's going on here? You know, and but now they don't know what to do. So that's another, you know, theory that I kind of had spark in my mind here. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's really interesting, you know, to keep drawn out this web of possibilities, of course, but yeah, that, that's interesting. Oh man, I'm over here just going all over the place. Before I take us down another rabbit hole, Ron, <laughs> let me try to get us back on board here and ask you this. Ron, I think we have enough time here for one more good story. Do you have another paranormal story that you could share with us by chance? Well, let's see. Um... Uh, this is a short one here. I This is, again, an email that was sent. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any backstory. It comes from uh, Jeremy Lucas in Bear, Delaware. Uh, it's a very small rural town, but it's south of Wilmington, if that means anything to anyone out there. Um, Jeremy wrote, Hello, Ron. I've listened to you for about a year now. And I have to say, I hear and obey, I do have a story to tell. There's a place near Bear called Lums Pond State Park. 
It has a pretty incredible story of the paranormal. Ghostly screams and pleadings are said to come from the woods just off the hiking trail around the pond. They are believed to stem from an 1870s murder. Here is my story, and this is absolutely true. I was part of a ghost hunting group in the late 90s. We weren't anything professional, just a group of young guys with recorders and cameras. We never encountered much until we came to Lum's Pond. One of the group knew a little about the crime and where the body was found. There was a part of the hiking trail where the path navigates a little valley and crosses a bridge. The spot is 40 feet away from the bridge. Anyway, we were there at sunset and did our routine for about an hour. We took pictures, looked around, and asked the ghost questions next to the recorder in hopes of getting something ghostly in response. Nothing out of the ordinary seemed to happen. However, later we reviewed the tape. At first there was nothing but normal forest noise and our own voices. Then we heard heavy breathing, a girl or woman sobbing, and finally crazy whispering. We couldn't make out most of the words except for please and no, but we did hear a scream. Not really loud, more muffled, like someone was trying to scream with their mouth covered. Like I said, there are no women in our group. We heard nothing of the sort while doing the actual recording session. My skin prickles as I write this. We had gone ghost hunting, hopefully to see some cool things and gain some interesting experience, but not for something like this. It was horrific. I can't fully describe how I felt as I listened to the tapes. Point of fact, we never went out ghost hunting again after that, and I have never been back to Lum's Pond. Jeremy Lucas, Bear, Delaware. Wow. You know, for that team, Ron, I have to say that whatever they encountered, that would have just made my blood go cold. You know, so kudos to them for doing what they did and having the courage to get out there and do it. I mean, that's just what you do as a paranormal investigator, but hearing it and then trying to reimagine what they actually experienced and also what they reviewed. I mean, that's just wow. <laughs> wow. So, Ron, was there ever a report or anything, any type of documentation on how the uh, the alleged entities or, you know, spirits that are there could have passed away or anything that happened? Well, I'm glad you asked because I decided to do a little research, and I have my research here, too. <laughs> if you want me to kind of give you the background. Yes, please. Go ahead, Ron. All right. Well, I did do some research. And uh, before the pond was an official state park, it was just unprotected wild land. In the, 19, the 1870s, a young girl ran away from an unhappy home. She ended up seeking refuge in the woods at Lum's Pond. Unfortunately for the young girl, she was not the only one in the woods. She stumbled upon a man camping. He captured and murdered the helpless runaway. The gruesome act took place on the very trails that the visitors walk this day. Authorities found her body shortly after she was murdered, and a massive manhunt to find the killer was launched. Sadly, he escaped into the night and disappeared forever. 
It's said that if you ever catch yourself there on a quiet evening, you might even hear the screams of a girl's ghost coming from the woods. I tried to find the name of the girl, but she was only listed as a runaway. Also, there seems to be some questions if it was the 1970s or 1870s. On the website, only in your state, I found this witness of account of another event from the pond. I quote it directly from their webpage. Okay, so the other day I was at Lum's Pond. I was taking a walk in the woods, looking down to be careful when I felt something rush past me. I look up and see a dark haired girl sitting down reading. Then I'm up at the playground and I felt it again. The dark haired girl is swinging and reading. Then I'm by the lake and I see her again. I go up and ask her what she's reading. She says, ghost stories. I ask her, why here? She replies with something haunting. Just trying to find my friends. I look up and I swear there were three mysterious dark spots on the lake, each with a white core. I look back at the girl, but she's gone. Uh, you know, I tried to find out if there were other murders there and I didn't come up with anything, just that one. But it supports the story that Jeremy told us. Wow, Ron, that, that right there is just, what a story, you know, and even more so if it's true, what an encounter, you know, that person had, because obviously that area was known, you know, allegedly there were murders or a murder that happened there. And um, for this person to have encountered an intelligent entity Obviously, that's what should have been this woman. <laughs> um, he's having a conversation with her, and then she talks about her friends. Like, okay, are we talking about the same woman that was allegedly murdered by, you know, the John Doe that was in there, you know, at the time? Well, whether it's the 1870s or 1970s, or is this a totally different woman? And there were three other people there, you know, and they were all in a group. Something happened. What if it is the same woman from the original story and there were three other people that were killed by the same person? I mean, there's so much that could be with what was given from this one story. And I mean, and also, sadly, it could also be fabricated, but I don't really want to just jump at it like that. I'm just, I'm trying to, come, you know, pick, needle and pick through this, uh, this alleged story here. It's really intriguing. I wonder why three spots, really. Could that have been the friends, you know? Were there other murder victims? I mean, it does, it really makes the mind, the gears start grinding, you know? Well, uh, again, if I take the skeptic point of view, um, I'd like to hear these tapes. This whole story could be fake. The, the thing that leads me to believe that it's not is the research that I did. I mean, I did that independent of his story. I went and found that story about the guy out, out, out there walking. I went out and found the story about this girl in the 1870s uh, being killed. So to me, that lends credibility to the story rather than saying it didn't happen. So I'm inclined to believe this story. Wonderful points, Ron. Yeah, you know, taking what's given to you, the story, and then being able to actually dive in yourself, do some research, find real documents, find real articles that cover 
the you know said story it kind of turns it into more of it not just a story but a true encounter that is real that is more than just possible it's it's there and um, when you have substantial evidence obviously it's really important to be able to review that and you know show that and share with other people and uh, kind of tie in what really could be and not just what's being said on a piece of paper but um yeah, most definitely evidence and doing further research to have that supporting claim of a given story. Yeah, very important, very crucial for sure. You know, connecting the dots here, Ron, there's a location here in Indiana as well that has a very similar story to what Jeremy shared with us. It's called Okeepanokee Woods. It's up north in a place called Peru, Indiana. And in the 1970s, this is pretty much a fact. It's been documented. There were some murders that happened. There's a couple people that um, they were able to recover their bodies out there. And from what I recall reading, the killers were never found. That there was no way of trying, you know, to find a trail to connect it with certain people. And um, if anyone was in that area while the man's the manhunt was going on, and you know everything was being conducted, they were long gone or they were just really smart on how not to be caught. And then uh, just recently, a year or two ago, um, actually, there were some new bodies, sadly, recovered in the same woods. So what, whether or not it's a copycat killer or there's some type of connection, not too sure. Um, there's also an alleged location up in that area in Peru up north called a witch's circle. And um, there's been some witchcraft that's allegedly been conducted up there. So whether or not it's an active cult or active witches or anything, um, I don't know. We don't know if there's any correlation to the murders or not with, you know, Okie But it's just kind of interesting that, you know, Jeremy's story, different state, possibly different time period, possibly same time period with, you know, people being left in the woods you know, for dead or, you know, being killed, attacked, hunted down in the woods. And that's terrifying alone. But then when you start throwing in some paranormal accounts here where there are still spirits active, they're trying to warn or they're trying to share their story, that just kind of chills your bones a little bit. So, yeah, that's, I don't know. It's uh, it's got my gears grinding yet again. This entire podcast, my gears have been grinding. So, I mean, head scratches all around, right? <laughs> but, uh, no, it's, it's truly intriguing. It really is how different states, you know, they can really have a big connection and so far apart. So, also, Ron, um, have another question. Were you able to ever reach out and make contact and ask some questions and, you know, get some answers yourself? Jeremy? Yeah. I did. I did reach out to him. Uh, unfortunately, those tapes are long gone. Uh, it was, you know, you got to remember it was late 90s, so that's 20 years ago. Yeah, that is a really long time ago, Ron, and I, I can totally understand that, you know, tapes, actual tapes, more than likely, that's what I'm kind of guessing it is, you know, they can get destroyed, lost, torn up. Yeah, so I, I can totally see that sadly being a thing. They are gone. Yeah, and they could have been actual analog tape rather than digital tape. More than likely, it was. Yeah, and with the possibility of Jeremy not having any digital equipment back then, you know, it more than likely was real tape on, yeah. So at this point, I kind of feel like the only real true way to support and verify his claim is to head out there ourselves and get some evidence. <laughs> Maybe one day, you know, it'd be great. Uh, a 
where was he from? Bear, Bear, Delaware. Yeah. And it's 14 miles from Bear, Delaware, Lums Pond State Park. I don't know how far you guys are away from Delaware. Well, Ron, you figure we're here in Indiana and he's out there in Delaware. So that's a couple states over. I would imagine, you know, at least maybe 15 hours. 15 hours? Well, I always, you know, I think of the East Coast as everything just packed together. That's the way I think of it. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree on that, Ron. Yeah, the East Coast, everything is kind of just like packed together and whatnot. And you start going further out West and everything's just like these massive big mountain ranges and plains and takes hours and days to get everywhere. <laughs> but uh, look, actually, looking up here on GPS, it is roughly a 10-hour drive, give or take. So it's actually not as bad as I thought, and that's good. So maybe we can make it in about a day trip, even get back to Indiana, you know, save some costs on hotels. <laughs> it sounds like this place has got quite the history, and based on just the research I did, it's got tons of stories that have come out of that park. Yeah, from the research that's been done on your side, Ron, and the story given by Jeremy, I mean, that's just enough for me to feel like I should jump into it a little bit more because I honestly haven't heard too much from Delaware and even on TV shows and whatnot. I mean, I've not seen that state covered with paranormal all that much. So I kind of feel like it would be a good opportunity to jump out there. You know, it's a new state, new environment, and in a sense, kind of untapped when it comes to paranormal and uh, it'd be a new good adventure, you know, and bring some good experience. So, and nonetheless, it, from what I'm looking at here, it's a pretty beautiful state. So, I mean, it would be a worthy trip just for the history and the environment itself, for sure. Oh, Ron, I was actually wanting to ask a question. The team left me a question here that they all kind of agreed on to ask. They were wanting to know, what part of Washington State are you from, by chance? Uh, furthest south that you can. In fact, if I throw a stone hard enough, I can throw it into Oregon. That's pretty cool, Ron. Yeah, I'll have to let the team know that for sure because um, there's actually one of the members on the team, Nate, he has some family that's out there in Washington State, and he was wanting to know, and a couple of the, the other members, it was uh, Ryan and Kaylee, they were wanting to know about your local area for, obviously, the paranormal. <laughs> what type of history and what type of locations could possibly be out there? And, uh, you know, just looking throughout the map on where we could possibly take some summer trips and get some new exposure different states different culture different people different paranormal experiences hopefully <laughs> oh yeah i i what's nice about it is if you you can drive 15 minutes one direction and be in a major a major city and 30 minutes the other direction and you can be in absolutely dense forests and be looking for a sasquatch literally 30 miles from here we that we see and hear Sasquatch all the time. Bigfoot. All right, all right. Now you're really hitting some interesting points here, Ron. Talking about Sasquatch, a.k.a. Bigfoot. Now, even though my paranormal team, we haven't done any cryptid hunting, if you will, or, you know, delved into too much history or research on them, we are very open to cryptozoology. And we have spoken about them with other people before, and obviously, Sasquatch is one of the biggest, big-time American traditions here in the United States. It's, uh, it's really interesting, you know, and that's cool that you bring that up, especially being in Washington State. That's obviously a good environment to have a Sasquatch, I would imagine. 
So, Ron, I have to ask, have you personally ever been Sasquatch hunting? Have you ever actually gone out and looked for Bigfoot? Well, that's one thing I have done is I have gone on Sasquatch hunts in the 90s. I used to do that all the time. I'd go up to Amboy, Washington, and I would go with a group, and we would bang on trees and try to get responses. That is super cool. (laughs) Wow, Ron. So, with that being said, have you ever able to get evidence or you know at least experience something while you went out um we had some calls returned but that was about the extent of it nothing really to to say for sure that i can say i heard bigfoot but we just we definitely had some calls returned well still that's pretty neat you know i mean nonetheless going out there you know and getting something that at least sounds odd that you wouldn't typically get on your everyday hike i mean that's cool. That really is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had any, like, substantial evidence, physical evidence while out there? Like, you know, uh, broken twigs or trees or footprints or fur or anything like that? No. Not 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 in my time there, no. The group did, I guess, over time. Um, I believe they're still meeting to this day, 20 years later. Wow, that's great, Ron. You know, I hope that for the, the same regarding my team, I hope 20 years from now we can continue to meet and have that devotion and dedication, not, not only to the paranormal, but to each other to continue forth to share our information and knowledge and to continue to try to find answers and such. And that's, that's really empowering that that Sasquatch team of yours, they're still doing it and they're still able to. That's just wonderful. Yeah, they uh, well, that area is just rich with uh, the Amboy region is basically big, Bigfoot central. In fact, one of the Bigfoot hunting shows always seems to end up at Merwin Lake, which is where I spent a great deal of my youth back when I was a kid. Um, uh, that is just like Bigfoot central right there at Merwin Lake. Wow, that's really neat, Ron, especially that you're able to include your childhood, you know, with something that you later did in life as an adult. That's just really unique and really cool. That's that's nice to reflect on. Yeah, well, the thing is about what people don't realize about the area in this area of the world is that you can literally lose yourself in the forests. And they say, well, why don't you see Bigfoot? Anybody that lives around these forests, especially the Pinchot National Forest, or even right around here in our forest, which is quite dense, you you can disappear. People disappear all the time and, and never are found again in these forests. And that's there's nothing paranormal about it. You just, they're just so vast. Oh yeah, I can only imagine, you know, with people going out there hiking or, you know, needing to just decompress, whatever. I mean, there's so much land out there, Ron. I mean, you can even look it up on GPS, Google Maps, and just see how vast the forests are out there. And, and for someone like you to live there and not look at it from an aerial view, I'm sure being there in first person, you know, just being engulfed by all that land, all the trees, all the forest, it's just overwhelming. So, yeah, I couldn't even imagine going out there and not knowing where to go and just next thing you know it you're just lost you're gone (laughs) and it's sad and scary but it's real you know people get a little cocky or you know something happens and next thing you know you're engulfed by the forest Mm -hmm. i would also imagine 
that the uh, technology out there is very rare <laughs> and uh, Wi-Fi signals probably aren't the strongest out there. So I would imagine that couldn't really help you all too much. Oh, they're getting better out there, especially in Amboy. Yeah, they have everything uh, internet based there at Amboy. But again, if you get out there in the woods, doesn't mean nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. In a very scary way, very true. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. It's, it's it's just amazing that, you know, 30 miles from where I sit right now, you can be just totally immersed in absolute wilderness. Man, yeah, when it comes to getting lost out there, Ron, I mean, we have parks and little woods and stuff down here, you know, over here in Indiana and whatnot, but I don't think anything nearly as huge as what you have in Washington State. So, I mean, man, yeah, especially if you're going to go out there and do some uh, Sasquatch hunting or even if there's a paranormal location, uh, allegedly haunted location, you really want to be careful going out there because um, I'm sure even search and rescue parties and whatnot, they have a really difficult time, even with today's technology. I mean, if they don't know that people are out there and certain people have health problems or they're out there for too long and they don't have enough people thinking about them and put in a uh, missing persons. It's just, it is what it is. It happens. So yeah. I, wow. Thinking about how realistic getting lost and being forever lost in the woods is, is just another, uh, another mind blowing moment there. <laughs> and then you got the gorge, you know, the Columbia gorge, which is just, uh, less than an half an hour away. And that is crazy the amount of people that disappear in those areas without a trace and there's even hiking trails and they they think oh well i can get off the trail for just a minute and then boom they're lost yeah regardless if i was you know experienced or a rookie hiker camper whatever you know um i, I wouldn't entrust going on any type of hike with just a day's worth of rations <laughs> especially with how many people you know get lost or you know something anything can happen and, uh, yeah, it's just not worth the risk, Ron. I agree. <laughs> well, they they certainly have it down here to a science in this area because it happens all the time. People, you read, you see in the news that someone got lost up in Eagle Creek and, and they're found a few days later dehydrated. And and that's why I always tell people I'm, a ma I'm an avid hiker. I love to hike. And I always tell people, if you're going to do the trails in this area, a day pack doesn't going to cut it. <laughs> yes and if your next question have i ever had anything happen on my hikes and the answer is no other than other than worldly things like wolves and coyotes and bears and things like that oh and wasps wow. a particularly bad encounter with wasps well shoot you're over here talking pretty normally about uh wolves and bears and whatnot on your your hike trips but I, I don't know. I'd be uh, looking the other way real quick while running. <laughs> so for you, you primarily have a lot more of the uh, nature attacks, I guess you will. Animals, um, natural animal encounters, not the paranormal then. <laughs> no, nothing paranormal, but I've had a lot of, a lot of uh, very, very uh, interesting events happen to me out there. Ron, if I remember correctly, you had a podcast I remember listening to not too long ago, um, while you were wearing a Fitbit, and you kind of recall that as being a little odd and weird, um, did that have anything to do with your hiking trips or paranormal? Uh, yeah, I call it the haunted Fitbit, but it's actually a Galaxy, uh, what are they, Galaxy Fit 2. 
<laughs> I just called it Fitbit because that's the more popular brand. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows the Fitbit. So yeah, you uh, you called it good on that name brand right there, Ron. <laughs> yeah, I did. But yeah, with that, um, kind of feels it, it. It was more of like a uh, attachment to the device itself, not so much in the woods, the uh, the forest or anything. So, but yeah, that, that was a very interesting story and a good podcast for anyone to listen to for sure. All right, well, Ron, I see that we're coming up on the hour here. But I did have another question that I would like to throw at you. In your state, are there any locations or good ghost stories that have been floating around that you feel stand out and, you know, is worthy a, a, a shout out on the podcast here, Ron? Oh, my yes. Good grief. Um, there's, uh, if you know how to get to it, uh, in the gorge, there is a cabin that was built from stone basically it was built with by stone but the roof was uh, all wood it was built in oh i'm gonna say right around 1850 ish and if you know how to get there i i happen to be one that knows how to get there uh you get to that place and immediately you feel the creeps without a doubt and there have been orb sightings there have been ghost sightings apparitions uh, all kinds of uh, activity around this uh, particular uh, cabin. And it exists today only because the walls of it were built out of stone. They literally picked up rock and built one of the walls. And so it stands today, still there, fireplace and all, but of course the roof is gone. And trees... Um, 100 foot trees are growing out of the middle of right out of the middle of this um cabin it's pretty incredible i have some pictures like if i can dig them up i'll send them to you it's it's an amazing spot it really is doesn't really have a name other than the cabin <laughs> and uh it is very 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 much ghost hunters love to go there and uh hone their craft because from what i understand you never go home without something happening wow ron i've not really heard too much about a stone cabin you know i mean at least not in indiana or anyone else i've talked to in the past couple of years but you know with uh it being in the 1850s and washington state i mean that's just a new fresh location to me to the team too even i'm, I'm sure sharing with them but uh Wow, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of history to that location, and it would be well worth a visit, with or without paranormal activity, of course. I mean, paranormal activity, we would absolutely love to have that, but, you know, going there just to witness that humans did build that, and at one point in time, it was a very important structure, but, and I'm sure to see it even in the state that it's in today, with the trees coming out of it, it's just like, wow, this is life, and that's what nature does when man doesn't you know clean up after themselves you know nature just reclaims that's i don't know it's really interesting ron thank you for sharing that that's that's really cool so have you personally been there yourself ron or any time you know recently when's the last time you've been if you have i was there i'm gonna say probably last time i was there probably about five years ago and i took some pictures of uh just around the area just snapping pictures and I got a lot of orbs, uh, orbs on the pictures. Now, I'm, for one, believe that they were probably dust. 
but I, you know, they were just so bizarre looking in uh, pretty incredible stuff. But I have those pictures too. Ron, that would be fantastic if you could find those photos and send them over to us. That would be great to look at them. You know, even without the paranormal aspect on it, you know, just to see this location you're speaking of, that would truly be fascinating. I mean, locations like this is just really what makes traveling and getting into the paranormals all about. You know, it's stuff like that. But um, for, for sure, you know, I think something else I'd like to do, Ron, is get you back on the podcast and we could try to tap into some locations you've been to, even if they're not, you know, haunted or, you know, paranormal locations that you've been to for sure. But if there's a lot of history to them, perhaps you could come on, share your insight on that, the history of it. And we could possibly put a little paranormal twist in there and be like, hey, maybe there is something because this happened or because it was built during this time. I don't know. I think that'd be pretty cool. Well, I like I said, I I don't have any, you know other than feeling creepy and some weird pictures. I got nothing. And again, Ron, that's perfectly fine. We're more personal. We're more open-minded, you know. So it doesn't have to be paranormal. It's that's totally fine, you know. And with us just being a little more open and understanding of what is around us, Ron. It's not just the paranormal and whatnot, but that's kind of what we try to get into is understanding what is around us, not just hauntings and demons and all that other stuff. It's it's getting into the history. It's getting into the facts. It's getting into helping people understand truth, you know, from fabrication. I agree with that. That's, that's ultimately what we strive for. You know, if we do happen to catch the eye of the public or the community, we want it to because we give the truth and we break things down. We water everything down and we're here to help and we're here to find the answers. Truth. That's it. (laughs) Well, Ron, sadly, it seems like it's about that time. But on the bright side, I've had a wonderful time and I would love to have you back on. And Ron, I'm sure the rest of the team would love to have you back on. And hopefully next time we can get the entire team on. And everybody can talk with you and, you know, share some more stories and, you know, more theories and all that good stuff and go from there. Anytime you let me tell stories, I'm happy. It's my jam. Of course, of course. You know, jamming out to the right stuff, Ron, that's the way to do it. So we'll get you back on, tell some more stories and keep on keeping on with the podcast world. (laughs) So until next time, Ron, stay frosty and thank you again. You betcha. All right, everyone. Once again, another podcast under our wing here at the Paraconnection Podcast. That was with Ron Hood from the podcast Ron's Amazing Stories. I have to say personally, that was a fantastic podcast. Ron had a lot of great stories to share with us, head scratchers and paranormal alike. And of course, a little mix in there of logical thinking and theories. So I had a blast. And Ron, I hope you did too. And I hope all the listeners out there, I hope you guys also had a wonderful time. And again, it was such an honor to have you on, Ron, as a friend and a fellow podcaster to share stories on our podcast, especially starting off with uh, not having a podcast, and you were one of the first ones that I listened to. So again, thank you for your time and the honor of having you on. So without further ado, you guys know this part. Sadly, the podcast is indeed coming to an end. Time does fly when you're having fun. If you want to go ahead and contact PILT Paranormal, get on the podcast, you have questions, concerns, comments, suggestions, or you have stories of your own, you'd like to become a guest, all you have to do is go to Google, type in PILT Paranormal, and you're going to find everything. 
our podcast, our website, our Facebook, all of our social media. It's going to be there. So I'm going to take the advice from Ron and just tell you guys to go to Google and type in PILT Paranormal and you will find us. So thank you for that advice as well, Ron. (laughs) All right, everyone, that's pretty much it. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, stay frosty and we look forward to you checking us out on the next podcast.